Hey, this is Greg of the Philly Blunt. In this episode, we bring you a little culture and coolness. Alexandra Cutler Fekevich was a bit of a child prodigy on the violin. She landed at the prestigious Eastman School of Music in Rochester, where she eventually earned a master's degree. Just as she was about to return to Philly, a drunk driver almost ended her career. Ironically, it was a grandchild of the founder of the Eastman School of Music that struck her. Doctors told her she'd never play professionally again and to find a new career. Thankfully, they were wrong. She's gone on to play with the likes of Branford, Marsalis, Elvis Costello, Peter Gabriel, Harry Connick Jr., Rod Stewart, Styx, The Who, and tons of others. We think you'll enjoy her story and journey. Don't forget to review, subscribe, and rate us on whatever platform you listen to us. And also follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all as The Philly Blunt. And uh, we hope you enjoy this one. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Philly Blunt. My name is Johnny Goodtimes. I'm Reef. Hey, this is Greg. And we are excited to have our latest guest, a, an esteemed violinist named Alexandra Cutler Fetkevich. There was actually discussion on how to say it. He was like, I don't need to practice this. And it's like, of course, you, you know. Yeah, you and the guy announcing my diploma in high school. Right? Oh, God. <laughs> so you started playing violin when you were five years old. I did. Yes. Uh, was that an immediate love affair or was it something that took a little while to kind of uh, get on board? I mean, my, my son's currently five and I, I can imagine him, you know, maybe playing with the ukulele or something, but violin <laughs> seems a little intense at that age. It's a little intense. Um, you know, I had one of those righteous moms that kind of wanted to expose me to as many different things as possible, as young as possible. And um, so she had exposed me to a lot of music and instruments prior to me choosing the violin and much like much unlike other kids it wasn't forced on me I asked to play the violin and I wanted violin lessons and um, that was after you know my observations of um, a, a, a classical musicians that I saw on videos and, and concerts and also um, come on Eileen Nice. <laughs> so you know, sure. Yeah, I mean, that intro, that intro, that, that, a big, uh, impact that intro is killer, man. I wasn't really all about that like one shoulder overall thing, but I was all about like, <laughs> okay. mom, yeah. violins can be in rock music. Yeah. of like fuck this I quit yeah, like, yeah there was definitely several times when I, and then my mom would be like well it's up to you if you want to quit oh yeah, guilt. Guilt. yeah. yeah. right 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 yeah, yeah. We've, only, only, we've only wasted we've only wasted tens of thousands of dollars, of dollars <laughs> on you it's not a big deal at all <laughs> I know you've worked really hard at this and yeah. you know you're sitting in a good spot in the orchestra now but you know yeah. if you want to yeah, so Who needs a career? There was know. no stigma being a violin player. Like in my oh, school, yeah. band people were like, oh, band. even even in a smaller environment. Yeah, I was I was still like not. I didn't really fit in, you yeah. know. But I fit in with kids that were interested in music and not classical music, but other genres of music. And so, you know, I kind of clung to them and ignored the haters. Of and course. those are the people that if I ran into on the street, they'd be like, oh, do you still play the violin? Right, right, you know, right, right. Like, Probably selling fucking insurance. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's, oh, they're always selling hey, insurance. Hey, my dad sells insurance. No, I mean, like, that, I was just using that as like <laughs> nah, the, my dad you know doesn't what I mean? sell insurance. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. So did you, go ahead. 
so early on, so you said at age 14, your teachers were starting to steer you a certain direction. And it was around that age that Eastman started becoming part of the conversation. Yeah, the it was when I was in school, sixth grade. Music schools in the country. Thank uh, you. For those who don't know. Um, when I was in sixth grade, my, <clears throat> excuse me, my private teacher encouraged my parents to take me out of school completely. Mm. And to kind of groom me for a different kind of life than mm. the one I wound up having. And my parents said, no, we don't want her to be a complete and utter social misfit. It's, it's fine if she's a little on the edge right now. But, you know, right. <laughs> we'd like her to, you know, know what high school is like and be mm-hmm. able to interact with other people. So they refused that advice and instead were, you know, very, I was very disciplined about practicing and doing tons of homework. But by the time a couple of years went past and I got to the, that age of 14 or 15, no, my teacher started saying, like, you need to start preparing for this. You need to start playing in public, and you need to start doing more competitions, which I had done a lot of already at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always, uh, you know, I was always in, interested in classical music, but I was also interested in other kinds of music and other things. And when I went to visit Eastman, I was like, okay, this is the place for me. Uh, you graduate from Eastman, decide to stick around Eastman for grad school. So... Um, I did my undergrad, and then I, I was a little burnt out with school, so I took a year and I played in a training orchestra, uh, the training orchestra of the Chicago Symphony called the Civic Orchestra of Chicago for a year. And I, I applied for my master's degree, and I thought I was either going to go to Eastman or Juilliard for my master's, and I loved my teacher at Eastman so much. And most people will tell you that they attend a specific school because of the private teacher when it comes to an instrument, learning an instrument. Um, so that private teacher really molds your performance and your abilities and your skills. So I kind of felt like if I knew I could get a master's degree covered financially and I could be with my teacher again and I could learn some more about the business, like take some law classes and, and some music business classes and really get my get some more business acumen in regards to being a musician, then a master's is a no-brainer. Right. So, you know, for me it just seemed like... Um, and then if I wanted to teach at a higher level, which teaching was never really my goal, but if I did want to, that I would need that as the next step anyway. Right. So, it, you know, it provided me, it bought me two extra years with my teacher, which were very valuable. It gave me some really great opportunities while I was there um, because now I was visible to the mm. people making decisions. Right. You know, so I got to play a concertmaster show or concertmaster for a show with John Williams, and he came and conducted like the Star Wars dude. Yep, like nice. two and a half hours of only his music, <laughs> and then he just chilled backstage with us for like hours afterwards, signing our yeah, autographs. Yeah, like we're yeah. like, he's like, oh, you played second bassoon, and it was really nice. Your yes. solo in the blah 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 yeah, tonight. Yeah. And instead he's like of the four thousand people, with hundreds, he's like, <laughs> <laughs> right, pretty much. Oh, I'm John. He's Williams. like, oh, was that your autograph? I'm sorry. Here you go. Like, um, I'll take it and clone mm. you. You're it's, it's interesting because you talk about. I, I'm trying to think of uh, maybe you guys. It might be different. I, I don't think I had a teacher like that 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 meant that much to me and like took me under their wing and like really molded. What, what was that teacher like? What, what was their name? Are yeah, my teacher at Eastman. Yes, we're still in touch. His name is Ole Krisa, mm-hmm. and he was the um, the assistant of a very well-known violin master named David Oystra. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Mr. Krisa. Uh, still teaches at Eastman and we're still in contact with each other mm-hmm. and when I was there I just I felt like he was one of the best living violinists mm-hmm. and I still feel that way and he and I just got just had a bond of uh, camaraderie and kind of like understanding that I think really made me learn a lot from him mm-hmm. and or helped me learn a lot from him mm-hmm. and he's uh, very 
a very astute and poised Ukrainian man who has garnered the biggest accolades in classical music. And um, he's just an incredibly kind man who challenged me not by kind of like being hard on me like my earlier teachers, especially my earlier violin teachers did, which that was also another style, but he challenged me with that violin approach, repertoire. That approach doesn't work for me either, the, the hard style. It was probably the only area of my life where I could take that kind of stuff. Mm. And then I'd walk out and I wouldn't take it from anybody else. Right, you know? right, right. Um, my teacher at Eastman, you know, I, I came in very unconfident and and he and I would he would give me something and I'd say, Oh, I don't know if I can play that. And he's like, Are you doubting me? Mm. Are you are you doubting that I know that you can do it? And then mm. I'm like, Oh no, I don't want to insult him. Right. I better go try to play this piece. And it would be something that I would I would find very difficult. Mm. And that I was also uh, limited by the violin I had at the time. What and does he that did mean? something better. So like you can't win the Tour de France on a bike with training wheels, mm. right? Probably. Or like a big wheel. Mm. Like you mm. probably need a Schwinn that's super light and mm. or some kind of fancy racing bike. So mm. The same goes for music. Like, you get to a certain level, and if you go into an audition, you leave school, you go into auditions, and there are kids playing quarter-million-dollar instruments, and you're playing on a $10,000 instrument, the sound is evident, even if your talent level wow. and ability levels are the same. I never knew that. That's So, crazy. you know, it took a lot of uh, creative thinking, but I wound up getting a better instrument. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, went into a lesson once, and I said, I'm trying to play this, and it just won't come out on my violin. He's like, oh, yeah, here, try my violin. And his violin's like a half a million dollar Guadagnini, like an incredible violin. And I played it, and it came out perfectly. He's like, this is the first time I've ever believed a student when they said they're violin. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, imagine how many people use the excuse. Right. So wait a minute. These violins that you play and maybe the orchestra people play... They're like over like twenty, thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. So holy most, shit. I mean, you have. There's also people who own far more expensive instruments than that. Um, they how are, the hell do you judge? I'm I'm sorry. I just they're treated like antiques. Actually, you yeah, probably need a really good insurance value. guy too. You know, Reef was busting on them earlier. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> right. I hear your dad's one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So the, I mean. People make a lot of sacrifices and save for an eternity to be able mm. to afford them. Or they just have, like, really wealthy parents, which I didn't have. Right. So, um, you know, I, I took out the maximum amount for my student loans in grad school. I say I had saved, like, another 10 Gs or so in a, in a, in a mutual fund. And then I put the rest on a no-interest credit card. Nice. And I worked my ass off. Yep, wow. did what I had to do. And now the, that violin has more than doubled in value. Wow. And so it's treated like an antiquity or any kind yeah, of like valuable antique. That's fascinating that most things, you know, you drive most things off the lot and it's done. You know, and right. it's done. I mean, you're not going to, yeah. you know, buy some drums and then the drums are going to be more valuable unless you turn into Keith Moon, but like, you know, if you're you know, it's, some it's instruments got, don't it's appreciate an investment. Like that. It's yeah, an investment right. not just an instrument, Oh, right? for sure. Absolutely. And the bow is too. The bow is like its own instrument. You could buy a, a bow for $40,000 if you had the money. Yep. What? That's crazy. And it, it, believe it or not, you as non-string players would be able to hear the difference. If I played you, you know, the difference between my violin with a really crappy bow and a really nice bow, you would be able to discern wow. some, some audible difference. Wow. That's awesome. But yeah. So the, the, the people that are in the orchestra, like Philadelphia Orchestra, I guess, are walking around with just... Some of them are playing very high Dude, you're going to get these people targeted. Like, relax. <laughs> some of them so, so, wait a minute. So, where are they at right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Some of them are being loaned those instruments, too. So, yeah. they're hanging out yeah, alone yeah, behind yeah, the Kimmel Center. Right. Well, there's some famous stories of some great soloists leaving their instruments in cabs in New York City. And getting them. Yo-Yo Ma left his cello. I'm pretty sure Isaac Stern left a violin. I mean, they're... 
and they get them back because it's very hard to pawn. An yeah, wait, yeah, yo, 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 check it out, check it out, check it out. Yo, yo, Pawn shop gets a strad, and they're like, "Sure, you do. Hmm. do you find yourself judgmental when you see other ones? Be like, ah, oh, they're playing that. Eh. No, it's usually the other way around. Yeah. Like, I love my instrument. It's a great violin, but like. Sure, a quarter million would be really nice. Yeah, you right, know? Right. <laughs> so you graduate, you finish, you, so do you come back to Philly and hit the ground running? No, uh, I graduated from my master's degree, and I ha- was freelancing in Rochester for a couple years. I-, I exhausted all of my musical possibilities there, and like, this is terrible. Like, I'm, I'm playing all what we call the freeway philharmonics, and I was like, I know that my career is supposed to be something different and bigger than this. I know that I'm not supposed to only play classical music. I want to write and, and create arrangements for other people. What do I do? So I was about to move back to Philly, and I was hit by a drunk driver. Oh, yeah, um, accident. That was before. I, see, I never knew the, the time frame of the accident. Yeah, yeah, so that was in 2004. So I had just finished. And, and that was, was actually around. an Eastman, right? Yeah, it was, it was a relative of the Eastman family. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the irony. Yeah. Can I have my tuition back, please? Right. Oh, wait, um, one of the, the college? Yeah. So, wow. so George Eastman was the guy who founded Kodak, and he opened the Eastman Theater to showcase his Kodak... Um, uh, silent films with the Rochester Philharmonic mm. playing the mm. scores. Mm. And then he was like, hmm, I think I should open a conservatory here too because there's all these great players and mm. so I have this great filthy, theater. Filthy rich. Filthy rich okay. from Kodak. Yeah, invented like Kodak. Kodak. Yeah. <laughs> invented it all. Yeah, you might have a couple bucks if you do yeah. that, right? <laughs> so, you know, that he built the school and mm. that's, and, and so this was one of his like great, great grandnephews or something, you know, mm. but yeah. Got a real nice smile in after drunk, that. Drunk driving? <laughs> no, actually, yeah. He, so he was going 50, over 50, and a 25 in a Ford F-250. So it was basically like getting hit by a tank. Right. <laughs> and I was parking my car, my Nissan Altima. Um, Whoa! And it's raining glass now. Yeah. Look at that. Dramatic reenactment. Yeah, I know. You're like, yeah, like, what's going on with you, man? Can we have her sit at another table? (laughs) Right. Yeah, we're fine. We're fine. We're fine. It's all good. Are you okay? Yeah. No, you're good. You're good. Relax. You're relaxed. Everybody all right? Everybody's okay. Yeah. Nobody move, nobody get hurt. That's yeah. how it is on the Philly Blunt, man. Right. You never know what's going to go down. It's like yeah, right under the air. <laughs> right under the air. We had gotten a really nice email last week about uh, constructive criticism about the background noise here okay. in, our, in our podcast. And I was like, you know, we took a poll. And I was like, we're going to do our best going forward. Wait, people don't like the background noise? What, are we no, supposed no, to most, sit in a closet? No, 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 most people like it. And this one was very nice. And uh, oh. She uh, just said that was her constructive criticism. And then I say, we're going to try our best going yeah, forward like, to yeah. minimize background noises. And it's like they cranked up the music upstairs or something. There's glasses falling. Yeah, there's, tra- there's a train going there's by. There's an elk. It's, like, like, it's, it's like the Blues Brothers. <laughs> How often does it go by? So often you don't even notice it. So... Sorry, lady. So you're parking your car. This guy's drunk driving. It's Cinco de Mayo, so all the people on the street are also drunk. Right. They made for terrible witnesses. Right, of course. Um, but I kept my eyes open while I was flying through the air. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty wretched story, so trigger warning for anyone listening. <laughs> um, I was parking my car. Another woman parked in front of me, and she was getting out of her car right when I was finishing. So he hit her first. <laughs> pinned well he i'm sorry he hit me first which slowed him down enough just to pin her against her truck and then i sent me flying through the air um then he backed up to get her body off of the his truck and left her there and left us there he hit he, it was a hit oh and run oh my god um and i 
hit her car and a Jetta and pushed them both 30 feet and wound up like in front of a tree. So they had to come and break me out of the car because I couldn't get out of either side. Jaws of life shit. Yeah, like it was a firefighter actually broke the door off. So I you guess had a the Jaws door of was life jammed too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a horrible feeling. Like the car was getting hot and I was totally freaking out and the 911 operator was nasty. It was terrible. So... Um, and she I'm yelling nasty? to this one. Oh, she was horrible. She was like mean to me for being upset. <laughs> um, it happens a lot, actually. Yeah, no, I've, I've read it. Up. Yeah, yeah. That, so, uh, well, yeah. But it was like time definitely slows down in a situation like that. It's horrifying. But I was like watching, like, I got to watch this guy. He's not going to stop. I knew it. I just knew it. And so I watched him while all this happened. And, and then they, um, this is the crazy craziness of the universe. Two days later, the woman who's who was hit in the accident with me, she survives, but they it's a my nine one one call that gets the ambulance to her aid. And she went into all these surgeries and they put her in a coma, a medically induced coma. Her boyfriend was a, a, an attorney in the Rochester system. I don't remember what kind. And he goes to a, a, one of the nearby bars where the accident happened to try to ask around to see if anybody saw who, who, who hit us. And a guy two, next to him at the bar picks up a call and says, what do you mean you may have hit two people the other night on Alexander Street? And it's the guy who hit us calling his buddy who's sitting at that bar. And this woman's boyfriend hears the whole thing and says, we're looking for that guy. You need to tell us where he is. <laughs> and so that's how they found him. And it was my eyewitness testimony that actually helped them prosecute him because I remembered all these details about right, him. Right. Which um, I attribute that to my musical brain because we a lot of us have very photographic memories and eyewitness testimony is typically very inaccurate right um so that was you know something that that helped us get him in jail but the ada kind of helped him out a little bit and because he's connected lied to the judge yeah yeah. lied to me and so she got reamed in the sentencing hearing which luckily i was able to attend and so he wound up getting four years and then they let him out for a couple weeks to go get his stuff together and then he got drunk, of course. So they put another one year on top of that. And so he spent five years in prison. Damn. But, he, you know, I what, was debilitated fully. I, what, what did you have? Broken arms? Broken? Um, I had a, a, a variety of weird ish, weird injuries. So I had a spinal injury to the bottom of my neck, like a whiplash in, injury. But I also had a traumatic brain injury from hitting my head against the seat really hard. Um, it crushed the uh, edge of my nerve on my left hand or my left arm where my arm had been on the driver's side mm-hmm. and then on the um, passenger side on my right arm it jammed my arm back really far and damaged all the rotator cuff muscles and caused a nerve a serious nerve injury in, in that part of my arm so you know I was told I'd never play again professionally and I should find another career wow huh? And how, how devastating was that? Oh, they, it was the worst. It was the darkest time in my life. I, I wanted to just disappear. That's yeah. what I told my therapist. Right. <laughs> I just want to go away. I just want to not exist anymore. Yeah. But you know what taught me a lot about my identity and that being a musician is not my identity. It's what I do and it's a big part of what I do. But it's not who I am as a person. And a lot of musicians who spent a life in a practice room like that get told, like, this is everything. This is everything you are. You have to, you know. So it was, it was, really, um, it was really good for me to get that perspective, even though it was a really rough road for a couple of years. And, and, and I heard you say something really fascinating, which was you said then you were told once that you would be able to play again, but you would never be as good as you were when you, when you before the injury yeah, I had and that was just as upsetting to you because you were like what's the point yeah exactly so I, I knew that I was never gonna 
I didn't think at the time that I would regain enough ability to play at that level again. And I saw that doctor one more time. And, you know, he said, have you given thoughts of what career you're going to have now? Like, it was no big deal. Like, I would have figured it out in a couple of weeks since right. our last appointment. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah I'm going to be a fisherman. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I said, well... I hear there's big money in insurance. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, you know, and I said, I said to my mom, I was like, I got to go to a different doctor. We got to find somebody else because this isn't working. And this guy's just, like, not helping me at yeah. all. Not even helping me get it's better to anything. It's amazing the amount of people that I've heard say... I went to a different doctor and got a whole new perspective. Like, just on any type of serious injuries or cancer or things like that. Yeah. It all depends on who the the, the, the positivity that they can bring. Because if you get some Absolutely. asshole that's like, ah, there's nothing you can do. And, and they're you not get fortune tellers that, either. Yeah. They yeah. don't know. They right. can't look at your body and say, you're never going to recover from this. Because, right. honestly, we just don't know. Right. And so I went to Dr. Michael Weinick, who uh, was a really incredible physiatrist and DO at Temple at the time, and he gave me my life back. He, he refused to stop treating me until I was on the way to recovery, and he, he told me every time, why don't you just try to play? Why don't you just, and I'm like, well, because I'll be debilitated for three days, and what's the point? And I'm never going to do this again. He's like, I don't want to hear you say that. I, and I would say, okay, I decided... This was after like a year of treatment. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to become a doctor. I'm going to try to help musicians that have had these kinds of traumatic mm-hmm. injuries because it took me so long to find you. You, you know, we need more people mm-hmm. doing this. And um, he said, okay, I'll teach you everything. I'll write you recommendations. I had the post-bac pre-med program application in my hand for the University of Pennsylvania, and I went to an appointment. And I said, will you recommend me for this program? And he said, absolutely, but why don't you just try to play one more time for me? Just, you know. And so... It was after two years that I finally tried again, started trying again, and first it was two minutes, and then it was five minutes, and it was ten minutes, and when it was 15 minutes, I was like, hmm, 15 minutes is nowhere near enough time to play even one rehearsal for any organization, but maybe it's enough for me to, like, play in my friend's wedding or something, and a friend of mine asked me, I went to Italy, I'm like, okay, nobody knows who I am, I could really screw it up, and nobody's going to know. I'm like, it's just Ave Maria at my friend's wedding. I played, and, and, and it was fine, and I did a good job, and I didn't destroy her wedding ceremony. <laughs> and I thought, okay, maybe I, could, maybe I could get it back. Meanwhile, I'm studying medicine, studying medicine, taking practice exams, like really seriously getting into it, um, which just gave me another hobby at the end. Um, but I got back enough, and I decided to take an audition for the chamber orchestra. I'm like, if I lose, nobody knows who I am. Right. And, and you got it. I won. So from the from the chamber orchestra is that where it led to you being able to tour with guys like was it Branford or Wynton? Branford it was Branford, Branford Marsalis yeah. the Who all that jazz like yeah so I um I worked really hard for that audition and to get myself to a level where I felt I was even better than I was prior to the accident mm-hmm. which I never dreamed would ever mm-hmm. happen mm-hmm. honestly I just I thought you know I'm always going to have these limitations and how far am I really going to get and um, you know, so that was a very uh, important moment for me winning winning that audition. And mm-hmm. I I caught flack from people too, like, "Who are you? We've never seen you before." You know, mm-hmm. not in the chamber orchestra, but right. in the rest of the freelance scene. Right. Um, the chamber orchestra was very very welcoming to me, and I still play there and 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 love it. You start uh, Philly Music Lab with a couple friends of yours. And Tell the people what, yeah, what yeah, Philly Music yeah. Lab is. Yeah, so Philly Music Lab is an organization I started with some friends, and um, they were friends from Eastman, actually. And um, 
I felt like there were two needs involved uh, here, and the reason that we I started it was in part what you said that musicians are great at showcasing their talent, but they're not necessarily great at marketing themselves or being good business people. And I felt like if we could educate some young musicians and even not so young musicians, but people who just are sort of stuck in a place in their career that that we would be of service of service to the musical community at large in Philadelphia. And the other part is, and in in doing that also, I had done some arranging work um, for uh, you know a pretty significant artist who will remain nameless and that person um, took advantage of me and the other musicians and didn't give us the credit that we were due or the or even pay the musicians what they were due for the work and I wound up in a lawsuit with this person so I wanted to teach other musicians how not to get screwed that was number one <laughs> how not to get screwed how to how to advocate for yourself how to get better work and how to be a good business person and the other part is that I felt like in a contracting sense that there's a a lot of really great contractors in Philly and um, corporate uh, corporate clients and private clients they know where to find a great string quartet or good jazz trio but they don't know where to find Radiohead on the accordion or you know (laughs) a really amazing uh, hot jazz band or you know a, um, a Brazilian folk artist you know so I felt like there was all this underrepresented music going on and underground music that was going on that people that I want people to hear so I mean, besides my uh, you know selfish desire to promote some of these artists because they're artists who I admire myself or whose music I think is awesome, um, you know I just felt like Philly needed that that niche filled. You know, it needed that space filled where like corporate clients are kind of tired of seeing the same old thing, for example, and they are going to pay the money. So why can't I get 10, 10 MCs in there <laughs> and and a, and, a, and a, like a bizarre brass band? You know what? And it's wor- it's worked, and so uh, I still don't know how you got the uh, what's the saxophone guy's name? The sax- oh, oh, the sexy sax man. <laughs> yeah, the guy that does it. Yeah, he does a careless whisper, but he wears nothing but like leather pants and leather suspenders. You know the careless whisper guy. He's got a mullet. Oh my god! He's a real sweetheart. He'll go into like grocery stores and just get up on and just play the sax refrain from Careless Whisper. That's all he does. That's all he does. Play that thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, he's, and you get him gigs? Well, actually, we played he a gig with him at Christmas gig. corporate gig. Yeah. It turns out that the <laughs> owner of that business had contracted him, but I was like, "Hey, give me your number because maybe I'll contract him for next right. year." Right. <laughs> you know, like you, you get this guy. guy for the store. Yeah, yeah. Just play yeah. for it. Oh my god, oh, it's, it's so great. Well, I have a connection. I'll send so. you a link. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I wanted to promote this other music, which also I thought might lead to opportunities for me to arrange for them and to write for them and to play for them. And so it's creating a network and of collaborators and, and, and colleagues, as well as helping some of them promote themselves. For sure. So is it like a nonprofit? Or are you like an agency? Where do, you, do you take a cut, like a service fee? Well, we get that question all the time, because half of what we do is altruistic, and half of it is like keep the lights on stuff. So mm-hmm. we are not a nonprofit, but we don't take any of the cost to operate our business from musicians. It all comes from the clients. Right. So they they, they so, pay for the talent and they give you your fee. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. And um, you know, like a lot of managers will will say, "Oh, okay, you want $1,000. Well, that means you're getting 800." Well, like mm-hmm. I won't play it that way because I don't really think that's fair. If your plumber comes and he says, "I want $800." You're just like, "Well, I'm giving you 600." Like that's not usually how it goes. <laughs> so, I don't want it to be the case. I think that musicians undersell themselves and undervalue themselves tremendously. Yeah. yeah. 
and talking about sort of what you're up to now, obviously that's a big part of it. What yeah. else? What other? You, you seem like a kind of person that's got a lot of coals in the fire. I got a lot of hats, a lot of coals. <laughs> um, I'm really going to be focusing a lot on arranging for other artists and writing for other artists in the next season, at least. Um, I've been wanting to put more energy into that for a long time, and I have tons of drafts of things that are, you know, just sort of like spinning around that need an outlet. So I'm going to spend a little bit more time doing that and Mm. putting more of my own work out there, which Mm. I am notoriously terrible at doing. You perform for a lot of different genres of music, and... I, I think, you know, I've heard you say before that, like, you, uh, you know, sometimes classical music is seen as this sort of hoity-toity thing that's uh, inaccessible to the vast majority of us. And it seems like you kind of have this mission also to play violin in places where it might, or in genres or what have you, that it might not ordinarily be played. Definitely. I think that it should be a lot more accessible to everyone. And I think we have to try harder in the classical world to make it accessible for everyone. Um, You know, it has a uh, Western European tradition, which is not what everyone in the world is. Mm. (laughs) So, or identifies with in terms of their, the cultural things they want to hear in music. So, I feel like we need to do a better job of making music accessible to kids and um, bringing music education back as a priority is important to me. Um, it's crazy you know, to me that that's not something that it like, should be mu- a music and art aren't like, in schools anymore. That's yeah. bizarre, it's, man. It's like it hurts my soul. Yeah, um, I'm pretty active in our uh, NARIS chapter, our Grammy chapter here in Philadelphia for doing um, advocacy with the United States government regarding musicians' rights and you know, so there there needs to be some systemic changes, I think, for that to happen. But as a as an individual human, I like to try to interact with people who play music in other genres, so that I can show them that that's possible. I can say, you know, like Reef, I want to put your music with a full orchestra, and we'll have a drummer there, but like and a bass player, like rhythm section, but like I want to make your music a symphony. That kind of thing is the way to kind of bridge those, some of those barriers right now on a human to human level. So it's wild to me that the orchestra kind of tries to do this, where people won't, some people won't go to the orchestra, but if the orchestra's playing Harry Potter or Star Wars music, yeah, then people will come out to see they it. They can identify like, yeah, yeah. with it. I think the stigma of like the you have to wear a tuxedo and I think pay five hundred dollars. You know what I mean? Yeah, the, t- the tickets are expensive. The attitude is uh, a little bit oppressive. Like, mm-hmm. why do we? Why can't we move in our seats? Why can't right. we? Clap once or twice. I do want to go one time with, and get the binocular joints that they have, like yeah. little yeah. opera glasses. Yeah. I'll give you my grandmother's time, pair. They're like real fancy and rhinestone covered. I'll loan them to really? you so you can like go to, awesome. go to the theater. Yeah. So there's oh. no clap. I've never been to the orchestra. No clapping. No, I mean, so like if you play, let's say, a Beethoven symphony, yeah. and there are three movements to the symphony: mm-hmm. a beginning, a middle, and end. You're etiquette-wise not supposed to clap in between movements, but if you really love it, isn't it natural to do that? Right. right. You know, and would you would you like that as an artist if you just absolutely. got done a great piece here and some applause? I love, yeah. Like one of the the greatest joys as a performer is looking at your audience, yeah, and seeing their their feeling, you know, and their energy. I mean, we feed off their energy a hundred percent, and they feed off of our energy. So I feel like we need to move more on stage and smile on stage and feel the music on stage and not just go up there and kind of saw away for two hours. Right. And and they need to feel that we're okay with them being human, you mm-hmm. know? Right. 
It still kind of goes almost by a 19th century it code does. of conduct. Yeah, and which we're is ridiculous. In the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous to me. And I've had people mention to me, like, I love coming to the orchestra, but I can't stay quiet enough. And I'm like, that's terrible that you feel that way. Like, I want to hear you. And maybe one of the reasons I'm so attracted to playing non-classical music is because the crowd wars. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, playing with the Who for 30-some-odd thousand people <laughs> was an unbelievable feeling. That's gotta like, be like, you fork. You fork. I'm like, am I really on the stage? With did, you, did you drop Pete acid before Townsend the show? Right now? I wish I could. <laughs> Man, that would have been like a whole when, other trip. When you're up there, can you see it? Or are the lights just so much on oh, yeah. you that you, you could see how, how many people were out there? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like, I, I mean, there are moments where you can't yeah. because the lights, you know, they, they, they bring them up. But I mean, in between songs and the, if they light up, especially in those big arenas, they mm. will just shift the lighting to the audience sometimes. And you're like, I mean, I thought 4,000 people for John Williams felt like an overwhelming number. That's like number. 10 times. Let me tell you, like, the pressure of playing a Schindler's List solo for that many people who know the music. <laughs> it's like, do you want to just, like, do, like, I don't even know what the comparison would be. But, like, whatever you know is super famous, like, then you regurgitating it. Yeah. And you're, it's like, Schindler's 20 years too. old. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, this shit's heavy, man. Yeah, people are, yeah. this, this Best makes case me... scenario, I depress everybody here. Right, 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 right. right. Best case that, that was can my happen. Goal. I was like, I'm going to make them. Better not right. see a smile yeah. in the house. Yeah, that's right. You're going to be yeah. depressed. Gonna yeah, be what is, angry what does someone say after this show? Like, hey, great job. Yeah. Yeah. That was wow. really good. I really like that. Yeah. I'm going to make them cry if it's the last thing I do. Encore. So good. Woo. Bang. Bang. All right. One time? Yeah, let's take it there. So this is rapid fire questions. One word answers. One word answers. Well, one, one or two sentences. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we, that's we a do, lot we've of done this with, We've done this with people when we're like, yeah, rapid fire. And they're like five minutes later still answering <laughs> questions. We're like, wait, we, we, we specified this. All right. Yeah, we're like, I thought we talked about this, guys. Right. All right. Uh, here we go. I'll start it off. Uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Ooh. I think I'm going to go with uh, invisibility. Okay. Mm. You play in a Johnny Cash... Is it cover? Yeah, oh, tribute band. Tribute band. What's your favorite cash song to cover? Oh, well, this is, I mean, I'm going to cheat a little bit because my favorite cash song to cover is not a cash song. It's a Trent Reznor song called Hurt. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. but he, yeah. ma- I mean, but he made Johnny, that his own. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. really made it his yeah, own. Yeah. Um, and only because with that tribute band, we've done some cool things with that tune. But I, I mean, it's Johnny. It's, it's classic. Yeah. I mean, not this Johnny. Well, you're classic, too. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. 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 Worst concert you've ever seen. I feel like when you ask like a actor like who's the worst kisser you ever had like it's that's it feels like that question the worst concert I've ever seen (laughs) um I'll say the um raging I'm gonna date myself big time here guys it was the 90s picture this it was the (laughs) 90s sizzling no I'm kidding um Rage Against the Machine at Lollapalooza decided to stage a protest against the PMRC instead of play Rage Against the Machine. So they just stood up there and played 40 minutes of the loudest feedback mm. a person oh, could possibly. Geez. And I wanted to like Talk take about an taking ice yourself pick yeah. to yeah. my ears. You're probably stand, out in the sun. Man. I was in the sun. <laughs> yeah. I was pra- pra- everyone was like had heat stroke at yeah. this point already. And then they're, like they're, the next band comes on to an angry mob. All right, <laughs> what song makes you want to dance every time? Ooh. That, I can't narrow that down. That's impossible. Right, give me one. Um, give us one. Let's say Earth, Wind, and Fire, September. Okay. Don't say that. <laughs> I mean, it's a yeah, good groovy, groovy good. tune. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a favorite tree? Oh, 
Um, a favorite tree. Maybe a cedar tree. That's cedar useful. Tree. It's a useful tree. Mm. If you could have been a pro athlete in any sport, what would it have been? <sighs> um, gymnastics, just because I have no idea how do you hurl yourself in the air like that. How do you do that? A lot of musicians name their instrument. Do you have one for yours? It's funny you say that because I've struggled since I bought it to find a name for it. So maybe you can help me find a name for it. I'll think of one. I think it's a male name. I think it's a male violin. Rex. No, it's not bad. Too trashy. Dwayne. 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 It's Dwayne. It's Dwayne. Ulysses. (laughs) Give me a classical piece that features a violin that I should listen to. Oh. Can you give me a century? 18th century. Oh. We're going to go way back. <laughs> then you need to just listen to all of the solo Bach sonatas. I mean, because they're the sonatas. Bach wrote a series of sonatas, and they're called partitas and sonatas. And they're, um, most of them are six-ish movements of music um, for just solo violin. And they're quite special, and they're quite standard to the repertoire. So most of us have played them. All right, uh, piggybacking on that, what's a contemporary song with violin that we should all listen to? So I'll give you one that's really going to like kind of melt your brains a little bit because it's one of my favorites. Um, it's the, uh, the composer's name is Alfred Schnittke, S-C-H-N-I-T-T-K-E, for all you listeners out there. Um, <laughs> and he, he wrote a lot of really interesting pieces. Uh, most of them are chamber works, but the one that I'm talking of is a concerto for two violins and chamber orchestra. So it's, the, it's a concerto grosso number one by Alfred Schnitka. Hmm. Uh, last one from me. Uh, what does Alex now say to the five-year-old Alex rehearsing, picking up a violin, trying her best? Hmm. Alex now says to Alex then, um, believe in yourself. Hmm. Just believe in yourself the whole time hmm. and don't, don't doubt that you're on the right path. For sure. So you were in a bitter lawsuit with the musician. Mm-hmm. Was it Billy Joel? Please just tell me it was Billy Joel. Like, part of me wants to say yes, because the other day my fiancé told me that his friends were in an argument about who was the more emeritus merit, uh, musician, Billy Joel or Bruce Springsteen. And I, I was like, I'm sorry, but we can't have this conversation. <laughs> if anyone, And they answered Billy Joel, and I was like, I, you oh, need new friends. Man. I'm sorry, I, but you need new friends. I feel like there's been a lot of Billy Joel arguments lately. I feel like I... I I've, He's very polarizing. I, I think part of it's <laughs> He's very polarizing. I find him like a hack, and people right. put him up on this pedestal. Well, the locally oh. they do. It's one of those weird things that yeah. nobody anywhere else does, but in Philly, for some reason, just he's, some he's people... He's got a fucking banner in our arena because yeah, like, he's been there right. like 40 times. I know, right. I know people from like, you know, New York that you know, they'll, they'll, they'll stab you over They'll Billy cut Joel. a bitch over yeah. Billy Joel. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, think it's I a New York New Yorker thing maybe. I yeah. think so too. I can see some merit in some of the songwriting but like, I can't. No. I, oh man. Don't give, no banners. No. All right. All right. Well, let's wrap it up on that Billy Joel uh, <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Let's well, let's give a shout out to the the spot where we decided to uh, record this week, Front Street Cafe. Uh, what made you pick this place? I didn't. You picked this place. Uh, okay. <laughs> we love it here. No, no, no. I come here for brunch all the time. We'll, we'll edit that out. We play, love it here. I'm, I'm along, just kidding. Actually, Front Street is a great supporter of live local music. And um, when Philly Music Lab first started, we had many. We hosted many events here, um, and uh, it's close yeah, to your so house. it's close to where I live, which makes it very convenient. Um, but yeah, any place that hosts live music and, and uh, you know pays musicians to play, I'm, I'm into. All right, I got, cool. I got another one for you then. Where's another place in Philly we should be going to listen to live music? Hmm. Um, 
I, it depends on the genre a little bit, but I think you can see some interesting, a lot of interesting things happening around town these days. Um, well, there's a free show at the Kimmel right now. Like they do the Sitting In series yeah. now, so it's it. music's was, everywhere in this town. I was going to mention the Sitting In series because there are a lot of really great artists that get to do some pretty uh, involved showcasing of their work at Sitting In, and it's free, and you can. BYO, which is mm-hmm. kind of nice. Oh, cool. I didn't know that cool. part. Oh, I'm wow. pretty sure Jeez. you can BYO like up to a certain amount. Yeah. Nice. Um, also, there's some great things happening at South. A lot of artists are kind of trying to get themselves in there. And there's a if you're into jazz, I, I mean, haven't been there yet. I hear it's dope. It's um, on Broad Street, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a more serious environment to watch music in, yeah. like than like let's say Chris's Cafe or something. But mm-hmm. it's a similar, you know, like kind of we're going to showcase new talent mm-hmm. kind of vibe, which yeah. I'm I'm always into. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. thank you so much for being Thanks on the show. Me. What's uh, what socials should we uh, look you up? Should people look you up at? Yeah. So you can always check out at Philly Music Lab, and my personal Instagram is uh, Strings Diva. So you can always check out what I'm up to there. And, All right. Good. Uh, so we don't have to yeah. when you when you post something every six months on there. Yeah, but I'm gonna see. I just told you I'm gonna work on some All stuff right. this All fall. Right. So All I'll right. post at more than every six months. All right. Cool. Reeves keeping track. Right, right. I am. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on there every day. Like, why is she, what is she hey, doing? Oh, 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 she's doing, she's she's good doing better. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Alex. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for a having lot. me, guys. Yeah. Right. It's the sound of Philadelphia. Yo, yo. Welcome to the home of brotherly love. Brothers covered in blood. The man's office is covered in bugs. The youth dreams cut short.